0: I invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. As we continue in our series in Colossians, we're going to be talking about true Christians and the obligation we have to pursue holiness. And I want to begin with a true story, kind of a strange story, but it's interesting, it's true. Back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a rather strange, that's an understatement, monk, a Russian Orthodox monk. He really never had a he never held a formal position in the Russian Orthodox Church, but he was a bit of a mystic and a monk named Rasputin. He was known as the mad monk or the crazy monk. He ended up in some sort of a spiritual advisory role to the last Tsar, Nicholas II which may have led to part of his downfall, but Rasputin claimed all sorts of crazy powers and healings and other things. But one of his most bizarre claims, in fact, I would say one of his most demonic claims as a mystic and a monk, was that he said Christians have an obligation and a sacred duty to sin. And to sin as often as they can. His twisted Demonic logic went like this, that whenever a Christian sins and then repents, God is glorified as the great forgiver. Now, it's interesting when you read his story, when he said Christians have an obligation to sin, normally for him that meant sexual sin, and he was a sexual deviant. And thus, he said, the more we sin and the more we repent, the more God is glorified, therefore, Christians have an obligation to sin, and the more, the better. Well, God's word comes along and would say, as you might imagine, the exact opposite, that Christians are called to lives of holiness and to obedience to Christ. I've been using Oswald Chambers devotional this year, uh, my utmost for his highest, and just in one of the readings just recently, quote, I love the way he put this, one of the tests, if your salvation is genuine, is this, has God changed the things that really matter to you. Not did you pray a prayer in Sunday school, not do you go to church, and not are you a church member, but one of the tests, if you are a genuine follower of Christ and one of his, has God changed the things that really matter to you? And if he hasn't, why not? And maybe we need to ask, are we truly one of His? As we continue in our series in Colossians, we come to this small section. Now, for me, this is a smaller chunk, but some of the Puritans would preach from like a verse or a word. So this is still a huge chunk in that terms. But four verses, one paragraph, but this is a very condensed, very cogent paragraph. And we're going to see three things as Paul explains how true saving faith transforms somebody at the deepest level who is one of his. And we'll see three, see three things here. You may have it on your outline. If you got one as you came in, the reminder, and that's in verse 1. Then the responsibility, verse 1 through verse 3, and then the reward. And again, his target audience here. Let's be clear. Young people, hear this. His target audience, those who are truly Christ. They have repented, they have trusted Christ, they have gone through spiritual rebirth, they are born again, the Holy Spirit is alive in them. That is a very different thing than just being religious or just going to church. This is someone who is a new creation in Christ. That is Paul's target audience here. So three things. First a reminder, he says to those who are truly saved... Since you have been raised, or if you've been raised with Christ, and understand what he's saying, I want to back up for just a second and say something I say a lot, which is, to really understand this, you've got to go back to Genesis and ask what happened. The Bible teaches that Adam and Eve, there was a real Adam and there was a real Eve. They were the first biological couple. All other human beings have come from them. And when they sinned and rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, it unleashed a whole Pandora's box of consequences, not only on them, but on the planet but especially on them and on their descendants. One of those is we call original sin or inherited sin. And it's a reminder that every human being since Adam and Eve is born infected with sin, born under the power of sin, born as a slave to sin, meaning they can't consistently not sin, and under the curse of sin. And the result is what Jeremiah the prophet would say in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. That's quite an indictment on the human race, quite an indictment on me. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. So that's the background is that when Adam and Eve rebelled, human beings since then have lost the ability and the desire to seek God. That's why Paul says no one seeks God and all are under judgment. Now that brings us to the great news. And the great news of the gospel is God offers an opportunity to reverse that by repenting of our sin, turning around, going in the direction and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ in which this Holy Spirit then comes into us. The Bible calls this spiritual rebirth. And here's the point. The Bible says that when a sinner is born again and goes through spiritual rebirth, the controlling power, that's the operative phrase here, the controlling power of sin is broken in their life. Doesn't mean there's no longer sin. Doesn't mean they no longer have sinful tendencies. Doesn't mean they'll no longer be tempted. It means they no longer have to sin. And the controlling power, the dominion of sin, its grip has been released on their life. And they, for the first time, have the ability to consistently, not perfectly, consistently say no to sin and yes to holiness and righteousness. That's what he's talking about here, this new status. They're risen with Christ. not just a symbolic thing. Somehow, mystically, ontologically, the, the risen Christ actually lives inside a believer and is working out, giving them new power and ability. And so you come to a verse. It's probably a hallmark verse for this. I memorized this verse as a teenager, Galatians 2.20. Speaking of a true believer, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the denomination I grew up in was sort of theologically liberal, and they saw Jesus as your example. P- Paul says Jesus is a lot more than just your example if you know him. He's not just your example, he's your power. That's the difference. He is your example, but he's your power. He's not just someone to look at like a statue and try to emulate. He, is, he says, I am alive in the believer. He is in union with me. She is in union with me. And I am pulling them forward and giving them new desires, new abilities. And new hungers. And new appetites. New loves, as Saint Augustine would say. Saint Augustine would say that when the Holy Spirit moves into your life, he reorders your loves the same thing Oswald Chambers says. God changes what really matters to you. What you used to love, you now hate. The sins you used to love, you hate. The holiness you used to hate, you now love. Those are the signs that you've been born again. Paul unpacks this a little more in depth back in Romans. I want to go back for just a minute. Romans 6 and 7. If you go back there for just a few moments. Paul unpacks the Christian's relationship to sin in more depth. We're only going to take a quick dip here, but this is good background material for what he's saying in verse 1, raised with Christ. He's going to explain a little more. Our relationship as if you are a Christian, to sin. And this is where a lot of Christians get really fuzzy in their thinking and get kind of confused. And it has real world consequences for how we battle sin and how we end up Uh, engaged with or not engaged with sin and in our whole spiritual growth process and our joy and all of that if we don't understand this clearly. So for example, Romans 6, 1 to 7. Again, what is Paul doing here? He is explaining the true believer's relationship to sin. And his point is this. Sin didn't die. The believer has died to the controlling power of sin. That's a very different thing Sin is alive. It will stay alive until the end of time when Christ comes and obliterates things and has the new heaven and the new earth. Sin is still very much alive. Satan is alive and well on planet earth. His demons are alive and well on planet earth. Sin is alive and well on planet earth. The believer has died to sin. That's what he's going to say. So I'm telling you what he's going to say. I'm going to read it and then I'm going to tell you what he said. Ready? Here we go. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? To which Rasputin said, yes. Bible says, no. Which shows he was a false demonic prophet. We are those who have died to sin. Again, true believers. who died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory Of God the Father. We too may have new life. Now notice verses 5 through 7. For if we have been united with him. In a death like his. We will certainly also be united with him. In a resurrection like his. That's Colossians 3.1 right there. For we know that our old self. Was crucified with him. So that the body ruled by sin. Might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin it doesn't say you'll no longer sin as a believer it is amazing that true born again Christians can sometimes sin spectacularly and horrendously the difference is they repent Judas and Peter committed the same sin one repented one did not because one had the spirit of God in him and the other didn't So, Denver says you're not going to sin, but you're no longer a slave to sin, meaning you're no longer obligated to it. You have the ability for the first time when you're saved to finally say no consistently or more consistently because anyone who has died, verse 7, has been set free from sin. So, what did Paul say? Sin didn't die. The believer, the genuine believer in Christ has died to the controlling power of sin. Look at verse 20, chapter 6. When you were slaves to sin. Now, when he says slaves to sin, some people get confused and think, oh, this is the most wretched, debased person imaginable. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about someone who is, as Augustine would say, double negative, not able not to sin. It's not that... Non-Christians can't do righteous things. They do. But ultimately, they can't do them consistently because they are under this realm of sin and they still are unredeemed and they're still slaves to sin. That's what it means. They cannot not sin. They can do righteous things here and there, but ultimately, there's no consistency because they have no ability to consistently say no to sin. That's what he's talking about. When you were slaves to sin... You were free from the control of righteousness. Look at verse 22. But now, but now, Paul's the great logician. He's the great logic man. But now, he's always drawing conclusions. Da-da-da-da-da, therefore, but now, that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. That's why preachers, why teachers, why moms and dads need to say, out loud, holiness matters. Holiness matters. Hebrews twelve fourteen says, pursue it at all costs without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That needs to be said more in churches. It needs to be said more to pastors and to people. We need to say to ourselves, without holiness, no one's going to see the Lord. One more verse 7, chapter 7, verse 6. But now by dying to what once bound us. You see, Paul, there's just different ways to say the same thing. But now by dying to what bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Jesus is not just the example for a believer. He is their power. He is alive in them because they are in union with him. Sin didn't die. We have been moved from the realm of sin over to the realm of righteousness. Sin is very much alive. But the genuine born-again Christian, ladies and gentlemen of God, young people, kids, is no longer under the power of sin, no longer under the dominion of sin, no longer under the uh, the jurisdiction of sin, no longer under the control of sin. And the bottom line is, if you know Jesus, you're in union with him, and he is alive in you. And so that brings us into verses, basically in the middle of verse 1, 1b, one down to verse 3. There's a new responsibility then. Because Christianity is not just a moral code of life. There, there's, the, the risen Christ is alive in the believer, giving them new desires, new appetites, new loves, new abilities, things that they didn't care about and they now suddenly care about. They have new desires and desires. And because of that, we have new responsibilities. And so Paul begins to lay those out, and he has two phrases here. Both are in the present tense in Greek. What's the new responsibility for a believer? Well, it says, set your minds and your hearts on things above. Again, present tense in Greek. So keep on setting. I mean, this is an ongoing thing, not a one-time thing. You gotta keep on setting your heart, keep on setting your mind on things of Christ. Romans 6:11, count yourselves dead to sin. And alive to Christ. In other words, because the true Christian's alive in Jesus, they're no longer under the, under the power of sin. They're free from that. That doesn't mean they're not gonna sin. They will sin. Like I said, sometimes we sin horrendously. The difference is repentance. And the pattern changes, and the trajectory starts changing. And believers have a new responsibility and a new power, those go together to obey Christ. More consistently, increasingly consistently, to kill sin and choose joy. That's what's available in the gospel. One of my all-time favorite authors, John Charles Ryle, J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle was an Anglican bishop. I have a number of his books. I love his books. He, is, he was such a lucid writer as a bishop and as a pastor. So clear, so practical. and He's very easy to read even today even though he lived over hundred years ago in England as an Anglican bishop in Liverpool, way before the Beatles were there. J.C. Ryle was there rocking the place. And an Anglican bishop, he, uh, one of his best books, in, his, in fact, it's this classic, is called simply Holiness. And He has a paragraph in there that just captures uh, Colossians 3 here. And he says this, when it comes to holiness and our new responsibility, it just... It does cost something to be a real Christian, according to the standard of the Bible. There are enemies to be overcome, battles to be fought. You hear echoes here of John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress. There are enemies to be overcome, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, an Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, and a race to be won. Conversion is not putting a man on an easy chair and taking him easily to heaven. As much as we would like that, your best life now kind of thing. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, if, th- if this is your best life now, you're going to hell. Think about that. I mean, if this is it, if this is the best it's going to get, there's no heaven. There's no afterlife in that sense. Becoming a Christian, says J.C. Ryle, is, hear this. Teenagers, young people, hear this Anglican bishop. From over a hundred years ago. When you become a Christian. It is is the beginning of a mighty conflict. In which it cost much to win the victory. Hence arises the unshakable importance. Of counting the costs. Close quote. John says. Or Jesus says in John 14. 15. If you love me. You'll sing in a choir. That what he says? You may. I won't be because I can't sing very well, but you might. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. There's the test keep my commandments. Or again, 1 Peter 1 as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. God says, be holy because I am holy. He's just simply quoting from Leviticus. Again, I'll say it again. I'll say it again. Jesus is not just our example. He's not just a big statue that says, do this. He is our power as a Christian because we're in union with him. We're one with him and we're joined to the risen Christ in his resurrection power somehow is alive and operative in a believer, and it gives the believer new desires, new loves, new ordered loves, and new abilities. Romans 6:18, you have been set free from sin, the believer has, and become slaves to righteousness. All right, preacher, get practical. Beloved, let's get practical a minute. I'm preaching to me and preaching to you. What does this mean? I mean? How does this look on the ground when we go home? We go back to school, go back to work, go back to doing whatever it is we do. What's this look like? If we claim to be true disciples of Jesus, well, we have new responsibilities. We have new obligations. I have new responsibilities to say no to abusing substances that maybe once held me in bondage. I have new responsibility to say no to pornography. So do you if you know Christ. Not to be consumed by lust and to remind yourself of the great cost of what that does to you and your marriage and your family and to you personally. It wages war on your soul. The true believer has a new responsibility and a new power to say no to lying. Some of us in here today are lying. And we are very close and or have crossed over the line between telling a lie and becoming a liar. And let me tell you, once you step over that line and become a liar, you are caught in a web of dark blackness that's very difficult to get out of. One of the most difficult sins Becky and I have discovered over the years in dealing with people and helping them get liberated from the swamp of when they have become a liar. Cheating, been liberated from sexual sin, premarital sex, homosexual behavior, adultery, or any other fornication, any other kind of sexual sin. We have a new responsibility for a Christian because we have the ability now to say no to it. Singles. You have a responsibility to obey the Bible's teaching about marrying a believer. The Bible couldn't be clearer that a Christian, a genuine Christian, has an obligation to only marry a genuine Christian. Let me tell you, that starts in the dating process. A believing Christian should not be dating unbelievers. That's dangerous, and you're playing with fire because you're teeing up to get ready for marriage. And the Bible's very clear that a born-again Christian should only marry a born-again Christian. All Christians... Paul would say, have a responsibility to honor God in their finances. To honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. To cease from working and to gather with God's people. All believers have a responsibility. So we heard this morning to obey God with the tithe. Doesn't make economic sense. But it makes God's economic sense. I can't tell. I mean, if I, I, I'm not up here to give you a testimony in tithing. But I will tell you that as Becky and I over the years have tithed, it's not always easy. But obedience isn't, (laughs) since when is obedience always easy? But the blessing that comes on our marriage, on our family, on our ministries, on our lives has been remarkable, even on our finances. And all disciples have a responsibility to honor God and show control with food, with alcohol, and other substances. And if we say, oh, there's no no hope, then we're just, we're, we're denying that we're really saved. I'll tell you a story about somebody who was consumed and enslaved to alcohol. In 1860, man you've never heard of, Ferd McCrary was born in a little town in Hope, Michigan. And like his father, Billy, Billy McCrary had come over from Ireland, County Antrim, during the Potato Famine, settled in Central Michigan. And his, one of his sons, many sons, Ferd, Grew up there. Ferd learned to drink hard. He was also a gifted musician. Loved to play in bars, write music, and sing. But alcohol became his master. He was a slave to alcohol by everyone's admission. In his spare time, he loved to sing in bars and play and get drunk. In 1897, his wife, Rose, was born again. She heard the gospel at their local Baptist church and she gave her life to Christ. And she spent the next 13 years praying for Ferd. 13 years. Don't ever give up praying for somebody. They're alive and breathing. Keep praying. St. Augustine's mother, Monica, prayed for over 30 years. For her son to be liberated from sexual perversion and to become a christian he not only was saved he became one of the greatest preachers in the fourth century and one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church don't ever give up praying rose prayed for 13 years and finally the lord chose to intervene and at age 50 50 fern mccrary gave his life to jesus christ his savior Everyone around him said the change was remarkable. And soon, instead of playing in bars, he was playing in churches. And the demon of alcohol abuse, gone. And instead, he was a slave to Christ. And I, for one, am a very grateful young man because it was my great-grandfather. And I've stood at his grave a number of times. And just looked down. Thanked God for what he has. What he did in our our lineage. He didn't have to do it. He does not call everyone. But Ferd was one of his elect. And he called him unto salvation. And it changed the course of his life. I am one of the benefits. Beneficiaries of that. Lastly, the reward. The reward is twofold. Paul mentions one of those here. First, let's just talk about the reward that's mentioned all the time in the Bible, and that's the joy of obedience. Listen, holy people are happy people. That's just like a no-brainer. No matter what they're going through, cancer, bankruptcy, tragedy, losing a spouse, losing a child, losing a business, losing a ministry, doesn't matter. Holy people are happy people. Unholy people, especially Christians who are unholy, are miserable people. Because the Holy Spirit ain't going to leave you alone. He going to pound on you until you repent. He wants to bless, but he's not going to bless sin and disobedience. The second time of reward here, Paul does mention, and that is that one day when Jesus returns, we're going to be part of the king's parade. That's pretty cool. When Christ, who is your life, appears, speaking to true believers who are killing sin and choosing joy, you will also appear with him in glory. We're going to be included in the king's parade one day in eternal life on the new heaven new earth. 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his and he will reveal them to the world. 1 John 3.2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We meaning true believers, because we shall see him as he is. Is. All right, let's land this airplane. The summons this is no brainer stuff. This is not rocket science. What's the summons coming out of this text today? Two things. One, you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. I have to too. Jesus said, You must be born again in John chapter 3. I have to repent and turn from my sin and grieve and confess to God and go the other direction. The affections of my heart then begin to change, and I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'll be saved. And the Bible says that's the only way to be saved from the coming judgment, the only way to be saved from judgment and damnation and hell, the only way to be delivered into the new life and given a new status in Christ. And that new status is risen with Christ, in union with Christ and the Holy Spirit living inside us. That's summons number one. Do you know Christ? Have you been born again? In every single church, every week, many come who are genuinely saved. But in every single church, every week, are those who sit sometimes week in, week out, year in, year out, and don't know Christ. They're religious. For some reason, they enjoy listening to sermons or doing the liturgy. I have talked to outright atheists who have told me, point blank, I don't believe in God, but I like going because I like the sacraments and the whole thing. At a professor at the University of Chicago told me that one time. I said, so let me get it straight. You're an atheist. Yeah. I don't believe you don't believe in God. No, no God. No. But you like to go to church every Sunday. Yeah. Why? Ah, it's just, I love the liturgy and I love the music and I love the, the whole thing, the readings. And I'm like, that's weird. <laughs> I don't know how academic that is, but that's just, that's weird. Secondly, a new status brings a new responsibility. This is the second summons. And the responsibility I have now, if I choose Christ and he lives in me, is I am to kill sin. Next Sunday, preview. Extra, extra, read all about it. Preview here. The sermon is going to be a violent sermon. Young men, men, testosterone-filled dudes. Next Sunday, a violent sermon is coming. Kill, a time to kill. Kill time to kill, we're, we're given a license to hunt and kill, kill sin. We're going to talk about that next week. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, without holiness, no one sees the Lord. So, I have a new responsibility to kill sin. And sadly, many Christians are naive about the war they're really in. And sin is reaping havoc in their lives. I, I'm just, just speak, speak to me, I have to remind myself of the terrible consequences of not killing sin in my life each week, each day. And what's at stake if I give in? That if I give in to my sinful inclinations, my sinful tendencies, and if I just give in outright to sin... I will not only damage, I may destroy my marriage, my reputation, my health, my children, my grandchildren, my joy, and so much else. And therefore, I have to attack sinful tendencies, subdue sinful lust, attack sinful desire, and battle the idols in my life. You may say, wow, that's not the vision I had of the Christian life. Well, you haven't read the classics then because that's how John Bunyan writes about it in Pilgrim's Progress. That's how John Owen, the great Puritan, wrote about it in The Mortification of Sin. And that's how all the great writers throughout church history, J.C. Ryle, Oswald Chambers, they all talk about there is still a war. But the good news is you now have new weapons. You now have new abilities. You now have new powers. Go to war and kill. Kill sin in your life. That's the call. Now, I'm going to close with this promise. Listen to this. This is a gospel promise to those who are chasing obedience. John's gospel, this is the words of Jesus. This is just surging with hope. Whoever has my commands, John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, this is the one who loves me. And listen to this. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them, And show myself to them. If you want Christ to show himself to you, obey him. This is not a reciprocal relationship, this is not a pure thing. He is master, I am slave. He gives orders, we are to follow, but he doesn't just give orders, he gives the Holy Spirit, and he gives union with him, and he says, I will be at work in you. Kill sin, choose joy. Or you'll be on a road to destruction.